for context, I'm going to read um, from verses um, 1 to 15 of chapter 1 as we prepare for our um, message in verse 15. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Heavenly Father, as we look at this word, at this short verse, help us to see the glory of Christ Please direct us, direct our thoughts, our hearts. Please direct my words, that my words would be your words, and that your words would go through me to your people to impact their hearts and minds for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So far in our study of the Apostles Paul's letter to the Colossians, we have dealt mostly with introductory matters as I, you can remember, I spent the first message um, providing an overview of the whole letter and explained many benefits um, in studying this letter, and, and there's good reason why I chose to um, study this letter in this series. Um, and after that introduction, we looked at Paul's greeting in verses 1 to 2, and which clearly stated his calling as an apostle, and his ministry, and by way of extension, the, the establishment of the church in Colossae, which all of that happened by the will of God. Paul's apostleship, the people he preached the gospel to, the faithful brothers, Epaphras, the planting of the church at Colossae. Then we moved on and looked at um, the following section in verses 3 to 14, and 
um, took three messages to cover that section, um, which are probably listed um, as one whole paragraph or section in your Bibles. And it, it may have a heading um, like Thanksgiving and prayer, which it does in my Bible, or their faith in Christ, talking about Paul's thanksgiving toward the church, his prayer for the church, and their faith in Christ and their work and their love for all the saints. And, and, and like those headings indicate, we looked at the many things Paul and his companions expressed thankfulness for in the church at Colossae, as well as the many things which they unceasingly prayed for them about. And then in verses 13 to 14, there's a transition in Paul's writing and flow of thought as he moves from these introductory matters concerning thankfulness and prayer for the church to a proclamation and teaching concerning the glories of Jesus Christ in verses 15 to 20. And so as we move to verse 15 and we're moving into this section, we're really moving more into the sum and substance of the letter to the Colossians, the, the meat of the book, as you would say. And it's interesting, um, in, uh, I, I look at many study Bibles and commentaries in my preparation um, for sermons, and um, one such study Bible that I look at, the Reformation Study Bible, there's a note that impacted me in, in, uh, concerning verses 15 to 20, and it says this. It says, Paul breaks into a doxology to the grandeur and glory of Jesus Christ. Many believe Paul is appropriating an early Christian hymn by pointing to the supremacy of Christ both in creation, in verses 15 to 17, and in redemption, verses 18 to 20. He points out what was missing in the false teaching at Colossae, an adequate view of the person of Christ. By doing this in a kind of hymn, he invites readers to worship the Son of God. This whole section, verses 15 to 20, and, and you may have a heading, as, as I do in my Bible, that says the preeminence of Christ, or the glories of Christ. Paul is exalting the glories of Christ in this section, and as that note in the Reformation Study Bible said, he, he, he seems to be addressing the errors concerning Christ that was um, rampant in, in the church at Colossae and in that region and all throughout the first century church. We don't know precisely um, some of the errors that they believed or, or um, where they came from. We do have some um, ancient documents and histories and writings concerning um, some of the mythology of the Greco-Roman world, concerning Gnosticism, concerning some of the heresies. And... and the, the Bible and the, the New Testament, within the New Testament epistles, there's hints at Gnosticism and some of the false teachings, uh, Jewish asceticism, legalism, and, and many of the, these things Paul addresses. But he, he confronts it head on here by exalting who Christ is. And in his commentary on the letter to the Colossians, Curtis Vaughn writes, both concerning this passage and the errors Paul addresses in it by saying this. The most dangerous aspect of the Colossian heresy was its depreciation of the person of Jesus Christ. To the errorists of Colossae, Christ was not the triumphant redeemer 
to whom all authority in heaven and on earth have been committed. At best, he was one of only many spirit beings who bridge the space between God and men. This passage is a part of Paul's answer to this heretical teaching, one of several great Christological declarations in Paul's writings. It proclaims the unqualified supremacy of our Redeemer. And it is somewhat arbitrary to separate this passage from what precedes it. So imperceptibly does Paul move from prayer in verses 3 to 14 to exposition that it is difficult to know exactly where one leaves off and the other begins. And some of you may know that um, when our Bibles were written, when the apostles and the prophets um, spoke from God and wrote the word of God, there were no chapter numbers. There were no verse numbers. There were no um, paragraphs. And, and even in, in uh, Greek or, or Hebrew, um, the grammar is a little bit different. So sometimes the sentences aren't the same. Um, we have the same words, the same thought, the same meaning, but just by nature of being a translation from one language to the next. Um, some things, and especially because... Of their lack of paper in the ancient world, they, they scrunched things together. They, they pushed words up against one another. So there wasn't many spaces at all. But if you knew the language, you could read it. It, it was no problem. And so when the, the Bible's translated, and then later on, um, as chapter numbers and verse numbers were added, which... Um, the scholars who did that, they did a pretty good job. Most of us would not have done as good a job as they did. But um, the fact of the matter is that sometimes we have partitions and headings that um, aren't what was originally intended. And sometimes we can um, look at things where we see a section where there wasn't necessarily a break. But there is, as we read this first chapter, there is this very smooth transition which Paul makes to this section in verses 15 to 20. And um, it's where I decided to begin a short miniseries of sermons to expound upon this section of Paul's letter. And I entitled that um, series, Glorious Christ. And, and in that first sermon, we covered verses 13 to 14. And we looked at Christ as our Redeemer King. We can see in verses 13 to 14 how um, Paul exalts Christ as King, showing how the Father has delivered us from Satan's domain and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, our Redeemer King, who we have redemption in and through. And today we will move on to verse 15, in the message for this morning entitled Glorious Christ Part 2, The God-Man. He is our Redeemer King, but he's also the God-Man. And in this short verse, Paul makes two profound statements concerning the person and nature of Jesus Christ. Two phrases in this short verse which proclaim two truths about the Son of God, our Redeemer King. And first and foremost, that Jesus Christ 
is very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed states, and as later creeds, confessions, and statements of faith would also affirm. And second, that Jesus Christ is a perfect and preeminent man. He is fully God, and he is fully man. But before we jump into our two main points for this morning's message, I want to review why. Why this is important, and why this is not only important for the Colossians, or was, but why is it important for us? Because most of us here, and those who may listen to this message later, would affirm and fully believe in Jesus Christ's deity and his humanity. And maybe so much so that we could have possibly grown indifferent to it. That it's just one of those basic truths of the Christian life, of Christian doctrine, that um, we believe, we hold to, we affirm, but we might not really see how they apply to our lives. But also, we, we might sometimes be so insulated in our churches and Christian culture and our relationships that we don't interact much with those who don't believe these things. And this is not the, the case in our world that um, many people believe these truths, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and, and hold them both in, um, in symmetry and unity together, that they're, they're not contradictory. And, and this wasn't the case in, in, the, in the first century with the church at Colossae or the Greco-Roman world. In uh, John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew's biblical doctrine, their, their systematic theology, they, they write some, uh, about some of the early heresies in the church and, and heresies later concerning the person and nature of Jesus Christ. And, and one of the earliest errors to infect the church, they said, is, was called Ebionism. And it said this this error insisted on the humanity of Christ to the exclusion of his deity because its proponents denied the preexistence of Christ, a view influenced by first century Jewish teachings. Jesus, to the Ebionites, was a great man, a prophet of God, one who was endowed with the Spirit of God and exalted to kingship after his death. And... This view would continue on, and they say by the 5th century, this viewpoint had left the church. But, though the church left this view behind, the Islamic view of Jesus is essentially that of Ebionism. They picked it up. And, and, and you may hear this in pop culture, that, that Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was a great moral man. Jesus was a good example for all humanity. There, there's, there's very few people in the world whether they adhere to some false religion or, or no religion at all or they're completely secular. There's very few people that would malign the, the person and character of Jesus Christ. Most would esteem him in some way or another. But not all and, and very few would say that he's God. Then there's this, uh, another error which... Paul addresses, and even John and, and Peter can 
you can see in their writings that they allude to as well, called Gnosticism. And MacArthur and Mayhew write, as a movement with roots preceding the New Testament church, Gnosticism gradually assimilated Christian elements. It consisted of a second century eclectic cult combining Greek philosophy, Persian dualism, Judaistic thought, elements of Oriental mystery religions, and Christianity. Gnosticism's main tenet echoed Plato's concept of matter being evil and spirit being good. Its proponents believed that a series of emanations had come from God. These emanations were termed eons, and each one became progressively more matter and less spirit, thus more evil and less good. Since the Yahweh of the Old Testament was the creator of all things, just another eon, Gnosticism labeled him Demiurge. The Demiurge was a heavenly being who was subordinate to another, greater eon, the supreme being. As the creator and the controller of the physical world, the Demiurge was depicted by the Gnostics as antagonistic to that which is spiritual. In Gnostic thought, Christ was either a phantom seeming to appear in a body or an eon that united with Jesus sometime between his baptism and death on the cross. The Gnostic concept of salvation consisted of a special gnosis, or knowledge, as that's the Greek term for knowledge, given through Christ to only the elite through an intellectual process. And it's interesting why I read about these two early heresies concerning Christ, because there's still elements around today. Yeah, many have said that, um, you know, and as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, and many heresies um, get repackaged and resold and renamed to the church and to the wider culture. And there's elements of Gnosticism in our world today, the secret knowledge that almost every false teacher claims to have some sort of secret knowledge, whether that's learned or through uh, uh, prophecy. And, and this is why the Apostle Paul, later on in the letter to the Colossians, in Colossians 2.8, says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And he's speaking of the true, true Christ. As he says earlier in verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1. And he would even write to Timothy about this. About this Gnosticism and all the false teachings in his world of that day. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 20 to 21. At the end of that letter, he writes to Timothy and he says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you talking about the gospel. Avoid the ir irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. He's addressing Gnosticism to Timothy, telling him to beware of it, to guard the deposit of the gospel entrusted to you, to preach it, to defend it, to proclaim it. And John John alludes to this as well in, in 1 John. In 1 John um, chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, he writes to his hearers, and he says this. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, 
and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, who, he who denies the Father and the Son. He, he, he writes to them, and he says, you, you all have knowledge. It's not saying that you have comprehensive knowledge or all knowledge, but you have the knowledge concerning Jesus Christ. You do not need this secret knowledge concerning uh, a false Christ, with the, which the Gnostics are, are trying to foist upon you. And he goes on later in that chapter, in chapter 2, down to verse 26 and 27, he says this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And in these two verses, he's, he's addressing this false knowledge, this Gnosticism, the, the, the false teachers. Because he, even as he says, you have no need that anyone should teach you, he, he's not saying to his hearers that, oh, you don't need pastors, you don't need teachers, you don't need you know, um, someone to teach you the Bible at all. You, you know everything. Just being a believer, you know everything. He's not saying that. He's saying, you who have been born again and have the spirit within you, you, you don't need this other um, teacher to come along and say, hey, I have this secret knowledge about Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostles, the other Christians, the Jews, they told you this, but let me tell you this. That's the beginning of every false teacher. Some sort of secret knowledge. And it's all concerning Christ, wrong views of Christ. Every heresy attacks the person and nature of Jesus Christ, or it neglects some aspect of Jesus Christ or his works. This is why John said in the beginning of his letter of 1 John, he says <clears throat> in chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And, and, and you can see where he, he's particularly addressing the Gnosticism of his age that says that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He was not just a spirit being. He was not just some great moral teacher. He wasn't a prophet or an angel. No, he was fully God and fully man, and he came to us and he died for us. But as the church would grow, it's not just Gnosticism. There was other heresies that would come along. A heresy called adoptionism or modalism, as MacArthur and Mayhew write, they say, some in the early church accepted a view holding that God adopted, thus the term adoptionism, the man Jesus as his son at some point following his birth, either at his baptism or his resurrection. The adoptionists can be considered one of the monarchianist groups, 
Those who denied the Trinity and referred to one God as one ruler or monarch. Monarchianism emphasized the oneness of God, a Unitarian view. Proponents understood the three persons of the Godhead to be merely different modes of the one God's existence and work. Since they did not believe the Father and the Son to be distinct persons, they spoke of Patripassianism, the notion that God the Father died on the cross of Calvary. Modalism, that, that God, there's one God, but he takes on different modes of the Spirit or the Son. That there aren't three distinct persons in the Godhead. And, and, and it's, on one hand, you kind of understand some sort of confusion with the Trinity. To explain the, the Trinity, because we will never fully understand the Godhead. If we could, we would not be the creature. He, he's beyond us. He's, <coughs> he's incomprehensible, as uh, Psalm 145 says. He's beyond our knowing, beyond our finding out. But the, the, the Bible clearly says that God is one. And it clearly says that God the Father is God, that God the Son is God, and that God the Holy Spirit is God, that they're all God. They all receive wor worship. They all do um, things which only God could do. They all say words which only God could say. <clears throat> and this subtle heresy of modalism, it's, it's still alive and well today in a oneness Pentecostal church. And, and, and it's very subtle. But it's not just that heresy, but there's, there's others. Docetism. And MacArthur and Mayhew, once again, they write, the Docetists derive their name from the Greek term dikeo, meaning seen or appear. This group took the opposite extreme of the adoptionists and insisted on the deity of Christ while rejecting his humanity. To the Docetists, material existence is inherently evil, the view proposed by Plato, also the Gnostics. Um, Therefore, it was impossible for the pure and holy Son of God to take on himself sinful flesh. They believe that the Son of God appeared on earth as an illusion, a kind of theophany. Jesus had no human body and could not suffer or die a real death. Another heresy that, you know, they rightfully said Jesus is God, but yet they couldn't see how he could also be man, which many of the Muslims that we try to reach Muslims, this is what holds them up. How can you say that God died? How can you say that God has a son? God is one. Yeah, we're right. You're right. God is one. There is only one God. But Jesus is God. He and the Father are one. The Holy Spirit is God. And then there's this, the last heresy I, I want to... Um, talk about because it, it's still very relevant today. Um, they write called Arianism. It, this heresy arose out of the teachings of Arius in, in um, around A.D. 250 to 336 as when Arius lived and, and Arians viewed Christ as merely a created being. Although he was the first and most supreme of all creatures, Christ was not of the same substance as God, but of a similar substance. Thus, they place Christ in a realm somewhere between God and man, 
as a creature to be worshipped because of the authority God had delegated to him. The councils of Nicaea in AD 325 and Constantinople in AD 381 responded to this heresy, and they <clears throat> rightly defended the right view of Christ. And it says that the debate centered on the presence or absence of an iota, I, in a single Greek word. Um, more commonly in Greek, it's iota, but we pronounce it iota. And, and the words, the two words that they argued over were homoousia, meaning similar substance, or homoousia, same substance. And the difference between those words is a single iota, and this is where we get the phrase, not one iota. Not one iota. Jesus Christ is God. And they created the creed, very God, a very God. And Arianism was, at that time, defeated for the moment. But Arianism is alive and well today in the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. And so, it's important that we look at these two natures of Jesus Christ in this short little verse that he is very God of very God and he is also the perfect and preeminent man. As verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And many Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons can take this verse and twist it and they can sadly stump many believers. And saying, look, there it says firstborn. Firstborn. So he was born. He was the firstborn. Like, we're, we're not saying he's low. We're just saying he was born. He is the firstborn. And that's not what that term means. What, what it means is not firstborn in time. It means firstborn in priority, in rank in dignity, in revelance, in preeminence. And we don't see this because of our culture, but in the ancient Near East, and even in many cultures around the world, the firstborn son has all the rights of the father. He is the executor of the family. He gets, as we can read in our Bibles in the Old Testament, he gets the double portion of the inheritance. He manages the family's affairs. He is held high. As he, even um, as uh, Moses called on the plagues of Egypt and they attacked the firstborn son. The firstborn son was the preeminent child. But he is also the image of the invisible God. He's, he's very God. And, and even you could even twist the image to, to that, that phrase, the image of the invisible God, to say, well, he's not exactly God, he's the image of God. No, that, that, that's, <clears throat> there wasn't a time that when he became the image of God, he was al always the image of God. The fact is that he images God to us. He represents God to us. And, and, and looking at this this short verse, 
and the theology within it concerning the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, there's, there's really four primary lines of evidence throughout the whole Bible which attest to the deity of Christ. First and foremost, it's not just this verse, that, that Paul is exalting the deity of Christ in this verse and, and would follow on throughout this section, but all of Scripture states that Jesus is God. All of it. And some of, you know, you, you may have had some arguments with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, and, and they like to use John 1.1 1, 1 and twist the words, and they, Jehovah's Witnesses even mistranslated the Bible to um, add A. He is a God. Um, but many parts in Scripture attest to the deity of God. The whole Old Testament points to Messiah as God. Even Job, which many scholars believe Job was the first book to ever be written. Um, Job lived around the time of Abraham. And even Job says, in Job 19, 25 to 27, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. See, all, all throughout the Old Testament, even from Genesis 3.15 in the, the Proto-Evangelion, the, the first gospel, the, the, it talks about the seed of the woman would uh, bruise, would, would, would crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise his heel. That it points to a redeemer. Um, e even before Noah, they're, they're looking for someone to redeem them. All, all throughout the Old Testament and throughout the time of the patriarchs, they were looking for a redeemer. And, and Job says that he knows that his redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. In a sense, he will take on human flesh. He will manifest himself to me and I in my flesh shall see him, shall see God. He will be God. All, all passages concerning the Messiah attest to him as being God. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is not talking about the Father. This is talking about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to Messiah as God. And those are two, just two verses. There's so many more. Second, the Gospels proclaim Jesus as God. And many, many verses and passages throughout the Gospels proclaiming Jesus as God. But here are just four examples. Matthew and his Gospel records Jesus proclaiming his own deity. In Matthew Chapter 16, verse 27, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This term, Son of Man, the, the Jews rightly saw it as meaning God. It, it's a term that Ezekiel uses, and, and it refers to the Messiah, to God. They, they knew what he was saying when he said Son of Man. 
And, and not only that, but as he says, he's coming with his angels in the glory of his Father, attest to his deity. And that he will repay each person according to what he has done. Only God can judge each person. Only God has that right. Mark, in his gospel, records a Gentile proclaiming Jesus' deity. In Mark chapter 15, in verse 37 and 39, it says this, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Centurion wasn't saying he was one of the sons of God. He was saying he was truly God. And a centurion was not any lackey. He was a battle-hardened soldier. He was a leader of a hundred men. And to to have this, this duty as a chief executioner, he saw many, many, many people die from crucifixion. He knew what he was seeing. He, he saw the darkness that spread over the land. He felt the earthquake. He saw the tombs come up. He saw how Jesus died and cried his last breath, how not one of his bones were broken, how he gave up his spirit, and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. So Matthew records Jesus proclaiming his deity. Mark records a Gentile proclaiming Jesus' deity. <clears throat> Luke records a demon proclaiming Jesus' deity. In Luke chapter 4, Verses 33 to 34, he said, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That term, the Holy One of God, is used by Isaiah and, and several of the prophets to talk about God himself, to talk about the Messiah. And, and, and the demons knew, he, he, he knew exactly who Jesus was. And he proclaimed it. And he also knew that there was a time when Jesus would destroy them. So we have records of Jesus proclaiming his deity, a Gentile, a demon. <coughs> and then John, in his gospel, records a disciple proclaiming Jesus' deity. John chapter 20, at the end of John's gospel, in verses 27 and 31, <clears throat> Jesus says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus didn't rebuke him for proclaiming him God. In a sense, he was worshiping him. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And then John writes, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And more than any other gospel... John proclaims the deity of Jesus Christ more, more than any of them. So <clears throat> we see that the Old Testament points to Messiah as God. The Gospels proclaim Jesus as God. The New Testament epistles confirm that he is God in many places. 
1 Corinthians 4, 5, Apostle Paul writes, he says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Talking about Jesus, that Jesus is to judge. He is the one that will disclose, disclose the purposes of the heart. And he will be the one who gives out the commendations because he is God. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus Christ himself is displaying the glory of God because he himself is God and because God has let light shine out of darkness within our hearts because our hearts and our minds were darkened because of sin. And through um, conversion, he shines that light and shows us that Jesus Christ is indeed God. Paul's letter to Ephesians. He writes in chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. He says, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Who has the highest name? Only God can have the highest name. Only God can receive the most glory. Only God can be above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And that God is Jesus Christ. And as Paul goes on in this section, in the first chapter of Colossians, in verses 15 to 20, it, it really mirrors a, a, another letter he writes. In, in, in Philippians, which also in Philippians chapter 2, this is also considered an early Christian hymn. In, in Philippians chapter 2, he, he writes this to the Philippians. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If, if Jesus Christ was a God, or was less than God the Father, he could not have the name that is above every name. It, it, it could not be that every knee should bow at his name in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He is equal with God. He is indeed God. And it's interesting because <clears throat> even here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is not only, um, as many believe, and is probably rightfully true, um, quoting a, a Christian hymn, but... He's pointing back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah. 
in Isaiah chapter 45. And, and through this section in Isaiah, Isaiah talks about the, the greatness of God and even God as our Savior and even points to Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 to 23, he says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is, is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. And look to this. Remember Philippians 2? To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is what Paul is pointing back to. That Jesus Christ is God. The Old Testament points to him as God. It states that he is God and in every way. The New Testament epistles confirm that he is God. The Gospels proclaim he's God. So scripture, all throughout, scripture states that Jesus Christ is God. Second, prophecy proves he's God. All throughout the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, oh, they say, many scholars say over 300 were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And here's just a few of them. I have just eight out of the 300. <laughs> the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Numbers 21, 8 to 9. That Jesus fulfilled this as he speaks to Nicodemus, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he says, And as Moses lifted up the, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That as Moses was told by God to craft that bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up so that whoever was bitten by a serpent would not die if they just looked upon that bronze serpent and believed. And that's the same for us spiritually, that those of us who are, are, are bitten and poisoned by the curse of sin, if we look upon the cross of Jesus Christ and gaze upon Jesus Christ and believe who he is and repent and trust in him, we will not die spiritually. <clears throat> Second, Jesus was a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. That Moses said, a prophet like me will rise up and you shall listen to him. Because the words of God will be in his mouth. That Jesus, in many ways, his life mirrored the life of Moses. Jesus was crucified as Psalm 22 lays out <clears throat> in clear detail. He was born of a virgin, as Isaiah 7, 14 says. He, he, he was preceded and affirmed by the voice in the wilderness as Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 to 5 and Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 say that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was rejected by his own people, not believed and suffered to save them as Isaiah chapter 52 to 53 says. The, the, the precise timing and of his coming and his death was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 and verses 24 to 27. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem before Passion Week or beginning Passion Week was, was prophesied in great detail in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. 
So scripture states that he is God all throughout. Prophecy proves he is God. Third, his works confirm he is God. The feeding of the 5,000, and that's recorded in several of the Gospels, was not only just a, a miracle, but it, it had great theological implications and applications that Jesus, as he said in John chapter 6, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This was part of pointing that he is the great I am. In John's gospel, there's several points. There's, there's eight I am statements pointing back that, that Jesus is the great I am. As Moses asked um, God at the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? And God tells him, say I am sent you. And that that term for God is, is so beautiful because it's just a present. It's an eternal present. Shows that God is immutable, unchanging. He is. He just is. God is. And all throughout John's gospel, Jesus continues to point to this. I am the bread of life. I am he. He feeds the 5,000. He gives sight to the blind. John chapter 9, it says in, in verses 1 to 3, as he passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. And his di disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he would, all throughout John chapter 9, you can read that narrative about the Pharisees complaining about Jesus giving this man sight. And, and Jesus says it, it wasn't because of sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What works? His works. Showing that he is indeed God. <clears throat> Third, he casts out demons. Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 26 and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. As I quoted earlier in Luke's account. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. It's not only that he cast out demons, but the demons pronounced that he was God, and he did it to prove that he indeed was God and is God. He is a great I am. He raises the dead. In the account of raising Lazarus from the dead, it's interesting because they, they tell him, they send word for him, Mary and Martha send word for Jesus to come to heal Lazarus, whom he loved, and yet Jesus delays. He delays. And when he finally comes up <clears throat> to the tomb, he says, take away the stone. 
And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And as many preachers have said, if he did not say Lazarus, they would have all come out. Because he's God. He created them all. And he delayed on purpose. Even though, and it's interesting because even in that account, he weeps. But he delayed on purpose so that they would see the glory of God. So that they would believe him. In this other account, he not only heals, which was his healing, his casting out of the demons, his giving sight to the blind, his raising of the dead, his feeding. All his miracles were, were uh, foretold in the Old Testament that this would be characteristics of the Messiah. This is how you would know the Messiah has come. That even John, when he was in prison, and he kind of wavered in his faith, and he sent someone to... Ask Jesus, is he truly the Christ? Jesus told him, the blind have sight, the lame walk, the, the deaf hear. He's like, I'm God. But in this, this account, in Matthew chapter 9, he heals this paralytic. And um, it's interesting because Jesus says, <clears throat> he comes and, and, and they... They have to tear open the, the, the ceiling tiles, and they, they bring him in. They, they, they lower him down. He's lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He, said, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. It, it, it's, it's not just that he healed him, but he forgave his sins. And only God can do that. And this is why the scribe said this man is blaspheming. Because he was making himself out to be God. Because he was God. Because he is God. Because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And it's not just that his works proclaim that he is God, that confirm that he is God, but his words also proclaim he is God. <clears throat> he said to the Jews, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He said, <clears throat> he said that before Abraham was, I am. In John chapter 8, this, this is where it comes to a head when, when the Jews are really, they really see what, what Jesus is claiming to be. Some of them ha have understood it earlier, but now they really see it. And in John chapter 8, towards the end, in, in verses 56 to 59, he says, <clears throat> Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him because they knew what he was saying. He's saying, I am God. I am the great I am. He, on another account, he said he is one with the Father. I and the Father are one. Once again, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him because he was, in their eyes, blasphemed. And they even said, he, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Many of our, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and many of the other Christian cults who, who do not believe in the full deity of Christ, they, they fail to see these verses. They, they, they hone in on, on one verse or two that they can twist and try to trick believers, and, and sadly, they do. But sometimes it's in our experiences in interacting that we learn more and more about the deity of Christ as proclaimed all throughout the Bible. In the prophecy, in his works, in his words. Finally, <clears throat> Jesus receives worship. Only God can receive worship. Anyone else who receives worship would be a, a blasphemer. They, they would be breaking the, the first and second commandments. When he was coming in in his triumphal entry, as he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, as Luke writes in his account in chapter 19, verses 37 to 40, he writes, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And why, why does he say the very stones? Because the, the whole purpose for creation is to glorify God. Even in Psalm 19, it says the heavens declare the glory of God and and, and, and it's not just declare, it, it, it's a continuous action. It, it, it would be better translated, are declaring the glory of God. Creation is to glorify God. And if, if we do not glorify God, if we do not praise him, at one, at one point, the very stones will praise him. And, and there is a sense in which they do praise him. In their beauty, in the mountains, in their grandeur, in all of creation, in the beauty of creation, it praises God just in its existence, and its beauty, and its glory. And it praises Jesus Christ because he is God. So we see that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, that Paul alludes to this when he says that he is the image of the invisible God, that he manifests himself to us, to creation. The great theologian Charles Hodge in his systematic theology, he writes concerning this verse in Colossians 1.15. He says, this passage sets forth the relation of Christ first to God and secondly 
to the universe. The relation of Christ to God in this passage is expressed, one, by the words just quoted. He is the image of the invisible God. He is so related to God that he reveals what God is, so that those who see him see God. Those who know him know God, and those who hear him hear God. He is the brightness of God's glory and his express image. This is what John meant in John chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has shown us God. He images God to us, the invisible God. And he is the firstborn of all creation. As the famous Christmas hymn, by Charles Wesley says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. That's what he's saying. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He was veiled in flesh. He took on human flesh and he for a moment unveiled that flesh to Peter James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration so that they could see his glory and then write about his glory and tell about his glory and proclaim his glory to others that he is the image of the invisible God and he images God to us and so then they would go and proclaim God to others Curtis Vaughn, in his commentary, who writes this. In relation to the universe, Christ is the firstborn over all creation. Each word of this phrase must be interpreted cautiously. Firstborn, prototokos in Greek, is used of Christ in addition to the passage under study. In Colossians 1.18, Romans 8.29, Hebrews 1.6, and Revelation 1.15. It is also used in Luke 2.7, but in a different setting. It may denote either priority in time or supremacy in rank. In the present passage, perhaps we should see both meanings. Christ is before all creation in time. He is also over it in rank and dignity. The major stress, however, seems to be on the idea of supremacy. Some see in the word an allusion to the ancient custom whereby the firstborn in a family was accorded rights and privileges not shared by other offspring. He was his father's representative and heir, and to him the management of the household was committed. Following this line of interpretation, we may understand the passage to teach that Christ is his father's representative, that, that Christ is, is his father's representative and heir and has the management of the divine household, all creation committed to him. He is thus Lord over all God's creation. He is the firstborn. He is Lord. He has all creation. The, the, the inheritance of the earth and the universe as a perfect and preeminent man. And that brings us to our second point, that Jesus is, in fact, the perfect and preeminent man. He images the in- invisible God to us. He is everything that Adam was supposed to be as the vice regent of God upon the earth, to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it, to 
rule over it, to be God's image upon the earth. Icon is the Greek word behind this word image. And that's exactly what it means, icon. It's where the English word icon comes from, that he images God. He is the icon of God. That's what we were supposed to be. But Jesus is more so. And he is perfect and preeminent. He's a perfect man. And it's not just here that proclaims his humanity, many other places, and usually his humanity is not a problem. It's not a problem for most people. As I read before, in some cults, some early Christian heresies claim that he wasn't a man, he was just a spirit, or he, he came on, looked like he was a man. But most people today affirm his humanity. History itself affirms his humanity. In secular history, even those who are hostile and have persecuted Christians would even proclaim that Jesus Christ was a real man, a historical figure. Even in church history, even most of the heretical groups affirm the humanity of Christ. History affirms his humanity. The Bible asserts his humanity as the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, in Isaiah 7, that he would be born of a virgin. As the seed of Abraham in, in, in Matthew's genealogy, in, in Matthew chapter 1, he points all the whole genealogy all the way back to Abraham, showing that he is in the line of Abraham, that he would, in fact, bring about that, those covenant promises to Abraham. He is, he is, the Bible asserts his humanity as coming from the line of David, his legitimate heir and king in, in, in Luke's genealogy. In Luke chapter 3, he shows that he is from the legitimate line of David. The Bible asserts his humanity as being made like his brothers in every respect. Hebrews chapter 1, and, and all the way from Hebrews chapter 1 to chapter 2, and, and the whole reason why the, the author to the letter of the Hebrews writes to the Hebrews, and, and many people think it's Paul, because he, he really, really, as he says in Romans chapter 9, that he wishes he himself was accursed for the sake of his brethren. He had a heart for his brothers, his, his, his kinsmen, the, the Jewish people. And, and he may have written Hebrews. If he did not write it, it was someone of his own caliber, maybe a former priest who came to Christ or someone who knew the Old Testament. <clears throat> and the writer to the Hebrews, he's writing to... Um, to encourage these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish background believers, or most of them were believers, but some of them may have not come to full faith, and they were tempted to fall away, to fall back into Judaism. And, and if you go apostate, you can't just you can't just go up and and and, and leave the church, or or or, or um, you know just brush off Christianity. You have to have an excuse. You have to have a reason. If it's not the people, it has to, it has to even be deeper than that to the, who God really is, the belief system. And, and we can see in Hebrews chapter 1 and, and chapter 2 that 
there's allusions that, that the writer is saying Jesus was not an angel. He was not a prophet. He was not a, a mere man. He was a God-man. Because those who were tempted away, were, te- were tempted to fall away, were tempted to say that he was just an angel, or he was just another prophet, or he was just another teacher. But he says, no, he was God, but he had to be a man. Because salvation requires his humanity. It, he had to be man. He had to take on human flesh so that he could be that perfect sacrifice for us. And it, it, it says this. It says this in Hebrews chapter 2 in, in verse 17. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And, and, and this is where this is where it gets to the, the deeper question, why? Why this matters? Why this matters that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Why this verse is important? Why, why it's important to be able to refute all these early Christian heresies and all the Christian heresies of today, all the heretical teachings of Christ, because it's important for us, not only for our salvation, that Christ is fully God and fully man, because um, only man could bear the sins for man because man has sinned, man must pay the penalty for sin, but because the penalty for sin is against a holy and eternal God, man can't pay completely for his sin. God must come in and pay that eternal debt because we have sinned against an eternal God, and so the wages of sin is not only death, but eternal death. Because even if somehow we could balance the scales and, and, and atone for one sin, we would continue to sin. And we would have to continue to pay for that sin. But because Christ is eternal, he can pay for that eternal sin debt. And because he is man, he can, he can die in man's place. He can Believe, because without the remission, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So he had to be man. He had to be God to redeem us. He is God. He is man. He is the God man. And more importantly, is that our hope and our consolation rests in his humanity. Not just that he is the God-man, <clears throat> but yet he lived and he walked amongst us. That, as some theologians have said, that it is quite possible that Jesus could have just came to earth, took on human flesh as a mature man, went to the cross and died, and in a sense, paid for our sin debt and give us salvation. But not precisely. 
because he had to live that righteous life so that that righteous life could be imputed to us because without righteousness, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without, we must be righteous to approach his throne. It's not just that he paid our sin, but he gave us his righteousness. But more than that, in his life, we have consolation. Because in many ways, he experienced what we experience living in this sin-cursed world. From his humble and shameful circumstances of life. That there was shame associated even with his birth. That in his birth, as, as um, Mary was betrothed to Joseph and was found with child, and people learned about it. It was scandalous. And this scandal followed him his whole life. And for any of us who have been born and raised in shameful um, predicaments and circumstances, Jesus can identify with you. And you can identify with Jesus. He, he, he knows your shame. He knows what it is to be born in humble circumstances, to have that shame heaped upon him. And, and, and not just him, but his parents, who had to bear this shame of, of the accusations of an illegitimate child. These accusations that were the reason why there was no place for them in the inn. And sometimes we read that verse and we think of a Motel 6, you know, but in an ancient you know, sense, but that wasn't exactly the case, because for every Jewish festival, when you went down to Jerusalem, or you went some, you stayed with family, and it alludes to the fact that his family shamed him, he was shamed, and there was no place, and, and, and until they found a, really a, a barn, an ancient barn, and, and he was laid in a, a feeding trough. That's what manger means, a feeding trough. He was born in humble states. He lived in, in this humility and the shame throughout all the rest of his life. And, and, and even where he grew up, even where he grew up, when, when um, he was gathering, when he came about in his ministry, and he was gathering disciples, and... and he goes to Galilee, and it, and it says in John chapter 1, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And as Nathaniel says that, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, come on. And some of you may have been born in towns like that. You may have come from areas like that. Can anything good come out of that county, that city, that village, that holler? You know. Jesus is able to sympathize with you. He he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Even the whole region was known 
for a region of darkness, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And this, this shame would follow him even into his ministry as the Jews said to him in John chapter 8, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. That, that story of his birth. The, 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 the traditions say that he was, in a sense, Jesus was, or his, his Mary, um, it was a Roman soldier that impregnated him and that he was a result of a Roman soldier. That followed him his whole life. He, he knew what it was to be in humiliated, to be shamed. His experiences within a fallen world, his experiences with temptation, his triumphs over his enemies, all these are the foundation of our hope and our consolation. As Hebrews chapter 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And, and, and that is why it's important. That is why it's important that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, that he is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus Christ is a perfect and preeminent man, that he is the firstborn over all creation because nothing less could secure our salvation and nothing less could be the basis for our hope for eternal life or even hope in this life. That we have a Savior, a Lord, who is both God and both man. And because he's God and because he's man, we can come to him, we can rest in him, and we can hope in him, and we can trust in him. And if you're unsure of whether or not you have placed your hope and trust in him and, and you have a sure trust, then you just follow his words and you come to him. As he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the, tr the, the, the assurance that you have come to him is that you continue to come to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ who did not count equality with you a thing to be grasped but emptied himself and took on human flesh that he may come to seek and to save that which is lost we thank you for this great salvation that we have in Christ Lord please increase our view of Christ our view of you Help us to live lives worthy of his name. Please be with us as we go about our day and throughout the week. Help us to glorify Jesus Christ in all we think, say, and do. In his name we pray.